Okay, today's scripture reading is going to be from uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. When you find your place, sir, please stand for the reverence, in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. It is a powerful passage of scripture. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to them, or Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. You guys are staring at a picture. I've seen that picture, and praise God for it. I'm looking at a picture today. I love this church and this church family, and I want to spend eternity with each and every one of you, each and every one of you. I have a question for you. When the rapture is occurred, or each in turn, will we, the people in that picture, not representing everybody, that past, present, and future, but the people in that picture, just for purpose of argument, will we be able to gather together in glory and take a duplicate picture? I ask you to ponder that thought for a while. Today's message from that text of Scripture, as you can imagine, is going to be a bold message. It's going to be powerful. I don't know when I will be able to talk to you again, if I will ever get a chance to talk to you again. But I'm not leaving until this message, which God has placed on my heart, is preached. And, and he's going to receive the glory, and I receive. I pray that this church will receive the blessing. I forewarn you, if anybody in here feels today that they are getting beat up by me, That's not the case. That's Satan belching lies in your ears. 
Tell them to be gone. Flee from you. Be gone. What is happening is the Holy Spirit is working on you. If the Holy Spirit is working on you, you've got two choices. To either fight it or yield to it. I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit is working on you in any way today, to yield to it. The text of Scripture, what we're going to hear and about Nicodemus is I could safely say that it's my autobiography. I could safely say it's my testimony. But God didn't write this book just for me. It may be your autobiography. It may be your testimony. And maybe after today, it will become your autobiography or your testimony. John chapter 3 occurred shortly after Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus goes into the temple area where the scribes, the priests, the religious elite were running their business, and he drove out the sheep, the oxen, and so forth. He overturned the money tables, and he drove them out of the temple and cleansed the temple. When you get to John chapter 3, John chapter 3 is a very serious passage of Scripture. There is a man that comes to Jesus by night. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of that culture that Jesus just drove out of the temple. If you want to know what Jesus felt about those people, read Matthew 23, where he says, You vipers and you serpents, you make a more twofold child of hell than you are yourself. He basically said, You are the blind leading the blind. You are taking people to hell by your religious nonsense. Now what I want you to know is that this man Nicodemus is in the center of this religious world that Jesus Christ cleansed out and exposed for what it was. I have to give a lot of credit to Nicodemus because when you are in high places and you're in the caliber of society he was in, and when you are raised in and webbed into your life, that kind of culture he was in, it's not easy to break loose from it. Don't ever underestimate people being trapped in religion and so forth. It's not easy to break loose from pride, culture, tradition, and I dare say brainwashing. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. That tells you a lot about him right there. Jesus was more than just a teacher, a lot more. That is quite a statement to reveal what is going on. For no man could do these miracles thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, and I'll tell you something. Jesus cuts to the chase. He doesn't say, thank you, that was nice of you to say that. I appreciate your encouragement or anything. He cuts to the chase and says to Nicodemus, and he really says it to all of us. Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to know something this morning. I want to be very clear about what I am preaching. I am here preaching on the necessity of being born again. That if you have never been born again, you must be born again, or you will die and spend eternity in hell. I am here today to preach that it's not a bad thing to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And I'm going to ask you front and center right now, everybody in this church, have you truly and honestly been born again. Somebody needs to challenge you to that in your life. Somebody loved me enough to challenge me. <sighs> if you have been born again, I'm thankful and I rejoice with you. But if you have not been born again, this is your day. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 2 Corinthians 6.2, today is the day of salvation. Please listen to the message of God and lock verse 7 in on your soul. Jesus said, you must be born again. A lot of times we hear you must do this or that or must not do this or that and imply things, are not, and imply things that are not in the scriptures in order to be saved. What is in the scriptures is you must be born again. 
The older I get and the further I grow, I realize that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God, and that Christianity is not about doing good things or being nice or quitting this or doing that, but it is about being born again of the Spirit of God, a new nature, a new man in Christ Jesus. It is a big subject, and pastor's going to have to bail me out in the weeks to come when I'm not here, because I won't be able to cover it all this morning. Otherwise, I might miss that off-ramp there, Sister Juanita. And uh, I think we're going to be here for a while anyway, because I deliver what God gives to me. I want us to hone in on verse 7, you must be born again. Charles and John Wesley were the founders of the Methodist Church in the 1700s during the Protestant Reformation. John Wesley was once asked, why do you always preach you must be born again? He simply answered, because you must be born again. This is how important this is. Study your church history, study theology, read, study, pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. John Wesley was trained up to be a preacher. He was a preacher, going around and preaching the Word of God as an Anglican preacher in England and around the, around the world in that area. He experienced a, a, a period of depression, and he, was, he heard some Moravian preachers and followers uh, and believers and they, that they had an inordinate peace about them, and he couldn't figure it out. Dur during one of his bouts of depression, he went to Aldergate's, Alder, Aldersgate Street in uh, London, England. My daughter probably can say that better than me because she's been to England. But Aldersgate Street in London, England, and on May 24, 1738, he heard a Moravian preacher preaching, and he came under conviction that he was not born again. He came under conviction of what that meant. An Anglican preacher who's been preaching and proclaiming the word of God, and he came under conviction that night and was born again by the Spirit of God Almighty, and the Methodist Church celebrates that as the Aldersgate experience. Nicodemus was a religious man, and yet he was not born again. He was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were very strict and separated people. Pharisee strictness, standards, and separation were their pride point. There is no point in me preaching about the Pharisees this morning if we are not, are not going to apply it to our own lives. A Pharisee was a legalist, and legalists teach that you do things to be saved. It's how good you live to be saved. Legalism is being saved by the keeping of the law or the keeping of a list of standards that somebody sets up. Legalism is rejecting being saved by grace and believing you are saved by how well you live. Legalism can come in all kinds of forms. Someone can say that if men don't keep their hair short, you can't be saved. Or if women don't wear dresses, they can't be saved. Or if you quit drinking alcohol or you... You can, you can, or, or if you quit drinking alcohol, you can be saved, or the drinking of coffee will send you to hell. These are but a few examples of legalism. That last one about coffee would get me and a great portion of my friends in some serious trouble if it were true. Uh, you are not saved by how you dress or how you live or what you do. You are saved by the by the redemptive, substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, period, plus nothing. Amen. Now the Bible teaches very clearly that when a man is saved, it ought to and will be followed by good works. There will be a change as a result of being saved, but you are not changing to be saved or doing things to be saved. If you do right, it is because you are saved, not to be saved. That is the difference between legalism and grace. These Pharisees were strict and they were separatist, and they were trying their best to live under the law of the Old Testament. Their righteousness was of, law, of the law. They had a form of religion according to Christ, but they, but they did not have the substance. They kept the Sabbath. They tithed. They had circumcision. They had ceremonial cleansing and they ate certain things, and they fasted a lot. Actually, these folks did more than all of us probably do together in the way of strict separate work, 
but they were not saved. New Hope has traditions, practices, and standards, as well as denominational practices. These could easily become a pride point that could cause people to become legalistic. I'm happy to say that this is a grace-preaching church that loves God, each other, and our neighbors. Amen? Amen. Pastor Dylan, Brother Mike, and Brother Tom are grace preachers. I am a grace preacher. We are saved by grace and kept by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want, I want that to be clear. Amen? Just because we are saved by grace does not mean that we should not, by the grace of God, try to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. And I also believe that when we sin, we ought to be honest about it. There isn't anyone in here, especially from the pulpit back, that doesn't sin. If you tell me you don't sin, the Bible says you are a liar and the truth is not in you. When you get saved, that's all God wants is honesty on inward parts. Don't deny it. Don't act like you didn't. Just be honest about it and say, I sin, Lord, but it is also with a godly sorrow. Because if we love the Lord and are saved, it grieves us to sin against our Heavenly Father. I malfunction quite a bit. If you don't believe me, there's uh, some people in the back amen row there, there that know me very well. I malfunction quite often, especially this thing I'm talking from right now. It gets in the way. The Bible says the tongue is evil. I spend a lot of time in my mobile chapel, sometimes known as Uber One, but uh, I spend a lot of time in my mobile chapel because when I malfunction, I don't try to get right with that person right away. I try to get right with the Lord first. I got my priorities straight because I sinned against my Heavenly Father who was merciful enough to save my sorry soul. And I'm going to go repent and get right with Him. Then I'm going to come to my family, my friends, my loved ones, anyone else that I've sinned against or hurt, and I'm going to seek their forgiveness. Nicodemus was not only religious, he was rich. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being rich other than the fact it is dangerous according to Scripture. I believe that most of us will thank God in heaven that he never made us rich when we look back and see eternity and what it did to people. I agree with my wife Kelly that it would be nice to have a little more. Amen. Money is nice. You got to have a little bit. But the truth is, if you look back historically, and you look around you at people who have more money than they really needed, it is very dangerous to their spiritual livelihood and especially to their succeeding generations. He was rich. You find that out in John chapter 19. He was the one who brought a hundredweight of myrrh and incense for the body of Jesus Christ. You don't do that without being rich. He was in the elite religious and rich section of the Israeli world. He was also a ruler. Nicodemus was also a ruler, according to John chapter 3, verse 1. So Nicodemus was religious, he was rich, and he was a ruler. But there was something else that he had that really trips a lot of people up and was tripping up Nicodemus. These things can keep you from being born again. I said can, not will. I said these things can keep you from being born again. This is where I'm heading. Being religious can keep you from being born again. If you're religious out there today and you're basing your life upon how well you live and your self-righteousness can keep you coming to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Being religious will make you proud. You don't do this, you don't do that, you do this, you do that. Being rich can keep you from being born again. The Bible says how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into heaven. Jesus didn't say it was impossible, but he said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. That's what the Bible says. That's why you should not be going after uncertain riches that makes wings and flies away. Nicodemus was also a ruler. When you get into a ruling position, it is easy to get proud and think you are something when you are nothing. God continuously has to take rulers down. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He is a real prototype of a ruler and what goes on. God will put you out to pasture and God will take you down a notch or two. I guarantee it. It happened to me. 
I know people, other people it's happened to. Nicodemus was also respected. Respect of other people can feed into your pr pride. The Bible teaches in John chapter 7 that the Pharisees were having a discussion about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were questioning within their inner circle, have any of you guys believed on him yet? And Nicodemus said, do we condemn a man before we've heard him out? Basically, he gave away at that point in life that he was a secret believer. He was trying to live in both worlds. He was trying to keep one foot in the Pharisee world and one foot in the faith of Jesus Christ. He was struggling about who Jesus was. A few weeks back, Brother Mike shared a scripture reading that clearly summarizes what Nicodemus was trying to do. Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is why we should pay attention to Nicodemus. He was religious, he was rich, he was a ruler, and he was respected. And yet, none of these things brought to him reconciliation with God and peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you what, if you watch the news or look at the world around you, most people want to be religious. Atheism, humanism, Buddhism, Catholicism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, they're all religions. Most people want to be rich. Most people want to rule. They want to have power, if not over others, over themselves. And they want to be respected. When you attack those things in their life, when you try to tear down their self-righteousness, they will usually get mad at you. Nicodemus had all these things, and, did not, and it did not save his soul. Think about this. Here is a man that had all these things that most of the world wants, but it did not save his soul. God chose this man. This is why we need to pay attention to him. God chose this man as an example to use to us about the emptiness of life and the insufficiency of all the things the world has to offer you to ever bring you peace and joy, satisfaction, and reconciliation to God. He lay him before us in clear view to show us the vanity and the failure of religion, riches, rule, and respect to give you peace, lasting peace with God. He also lays him before us to show us the absolute necessity of a man being born again. I want to tell you something. I believe Nicodemus was very, very sincere in trying to do and be what he thought he needed to be before God to be saved. And you may be very sincere this morning about what you think you need to do to go to heaven. But I am telling you this, all the stuff you have ever done that is good, all the activities and ceremonies, you may have been dedicated, baptized, confirmation, sang in the choir, even preached from the pulpit. But if you have not been born again, you will die and bust hell wide open. You must be born again. It shows us the absolute necessity of being born again of the Spirit of God Almighty. The first thing you see in this world's greatest tragedy, it's amazing to me that a person can be and have all that this world wishes after, the religion, the riches, the rule, and the respect of people, and yet die lost without Jesus and go to eternity in hell. Absolutely amazes me. He had his beliefs, but he yet was but yet was blinded by those beliefs. In verse 3, Jesus knew this, and that's why he said he cannot even see. He didn't have the least bit of comprehension what it was to have faith in a substitutionary Savior because he asked a stupid question. And yes, there is such a thing as a stupid question. I'm not one of these that sugarcoats that one. Second birth, do you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? You would think that a man who supposedly knew God and basically went around preaching and teaching God would understand this. That shows he didn't know anything about true spirituality and about faith in his substitute and that he had no comprehension about the lambs from the time of Abel in Genesis clear up to the times they were sacrificing the lambs right in front of him. And he had no comprehension of the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus Christ.
Nicodemus was the best this world can give you. He had culture. He had character training. I want to rabbit trail for just a moment to children. I want to rabbit trail to children for just a moment. It is great to character train your children. You can train them to be honest and upright citizens. They can be moral, virtuous, polite, and respectful. This is all good, but it doesn't make them a Christian. It will not save them. Children are not automatically Christians because their parents are. When they have reached an age of understanding and accountability, they must be individually born again of the Spirit of God. Back on trail with Nicodemus. Don't take the word believe lightly, because the Bible says the devils believe and tremble, but they were not saved. You can have an intellectual belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can intellectually believe that he lived on earth, died, was buried, and rose again. But you have not personally received him as your Savior, as a lost, condemned sinner, that he died for you in your place. You have never repented for your sin and received him as the absolute necessity for a Savior and for salvation. Nicodemus was the best this world can give, but he was lost without God. I think about this, and I've had so many interesting conversations in the past months and in the past years with people. They can wax scripturally, theologically, about the Bible. They can quote scripture for their own convenience, out of context. They always have a scripture basically loaded in the gun, ready to shoot it, shoot out the bullet of scripture right at you there, no matter what the subject material. But yet, when you start talking to them, you truly wonder, have they been born again? They have the intellectual knowledge. They have the head knowledge. They don't disbelieve that Jesus existed. They may not even disbelieve that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. They, they believe in God. But it's not in the heart. Their heart has not been changed. Their life has not been changed. They have a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. The world's greatest tragedy is that a person can be educated, cultured, charactered, moral, religious, and yet die and go to hell. As I was preparing this message, I thought, God, the greatest tragedy that could ever happen at New Hope Baptist Church, a church that I dearly love, is for you to come to this church, grow up or grow old in this church, and never be born again of the Spirit of God Almighty. I assure you that Pastor Dylan, Brother Tom, and Brother Mike and after today, myself will not stand accountable before Almighty God for that failure. In this church, the incorruptible seed is sown. The bread of life is rightly divided. The gospel is fully and integrally preached with all roads from Genesis through Revelation leading to the cross of Jesus Christ and his triumphant resurrection. Amen? I am asking you today as a preacher, as your friend, as a person who loves you, don't look at me. You won't see much good in me, but will you look at yourself and ask yourself, have you, been, have you truly been born again? Have you come to God with a repentant heart, acknowledging that you're a sinner, and clinging to the cross of Calvary, that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and your sin, and that your place, that you place your trust in him, I want to tell you something. The new birth is so mysterious, there's not a preacher on earth that can explain it. Jesus made that very clear. He said it is like the wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it came from or where it's going, but you can feel the effects of it. Right now while I am preaching, the sweet Holy Spirit of God, I pray, will breeze through this church and is working on each of us, myself included. I don't think there is any more of a tragedy in the world. You, need, you read or hear of all the atrocities done across the globe against people. There are horrible, unspeakable things done. But the greatest tragedy I know of is to die without being born in the Spirit of God and spend eternity in hell. You, you just turn on the news, and you, no matter how bad that is, picture Jesus saying, depart from me. 
I never knew you. And you're cast into hell for all eternity. There is no worse suffering. There is no worse tragedy than not being welcomed into the kingdom of God because your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. I want to say plainly to each one of us today, and I say it in the love of God, if you're not born again, if there's any doubt in your mind that you have been born again of the Spirit of God, I want to ask you to take care of that this morning. You're going to have to believe God about it. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All that come to him he will in no wise cast out. You're going to have to believe that by faith today, not by intellect or head knowledge, not with any doubt. You can't have doubt. Not because Christianity may or may not be a hoax and you want to play it safe. You have to believe in faith, abiding faith. Amen? You must be born again as a doctor in which there is no debate. There is no wiggle room here. This is not a doubtful disputation. Yet Satan and religion do their best to pervert it. In spiritual conversations, I have asked people if they have ever been born again. I have heard such answers as, yes, I was sprinkled when I was a baby. Or, yes, my church baptizes kids when they are 12 years old. Some will use today's text and say they went down into the baptismal waters. That water is the word. You are washed by the water of the word. The Bible teaches faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. You've got to hear the word of God, the incorruptible seed planted in your heart, and the spirit of God brings that to life. You can get dunked in the creek until every fish knows your name and social security number, and it will not save you. You get baptized to show that you did get born again. It is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We see in this text not only the greatest tragedy, but we also see the greatest truth. John chapter 3, verse 3 through 14, we see the greatest truth where Jesus says, you must be born again. Salvation is not reformation. It's not turning over a new leaf and trying to do better. Salvation is regeneration. Salvation is when God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon you and moves in you and makes and creates a new creation in Jesus Christ, a new man. It is not a new suit on the old man. It is a new man in the old suit. When a man comes to God in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit births a new creation. The Bible calls it, he has been a partaker of the divine nature. We've been begotten again unto a lively hope. Amen? I'm going to tell you why the United States, the world, and the local church is in such a mess. Again, I say the local church, the bride of Christ, his church, remains holy and unblemished, and it is utter blasphemy to ever say otherwise. And I pity the man there that says the church is all messed up. You better be talking about the local church, not the bride of Christ. He died for that bride, and that bride is intact today. It is because many churches and denominations have ceased to preach regeneration and they preach reformation. There are a lot of lost people sitting in churches who do not have within them the power to stand and live upon the truth, and every wind that blows through, they are caving into it. They yield to social pressures. They yield to the media. They yield to uh, people that are on the outside of the church protesting that should be on the inside of the church on their face before Almighty God. Uh, they, they surrender their pulpits to activities that uh, are unmentionable. They have preachers and leadership that have no business being preachers or leaders. They're on TV pr propagating damnable heresy across the media waves or around the world. And people in foreign countries are hearing the gospel. But it's not the gospel, it's false gospel. Churches are caving. The greatest truth, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is grace. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. One who understands mercy understands that they are guilty and deserving of the wrath of Almighty God. 
A person who sees no need of mercy is not in an understanding of salvation and the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. We have to claim it. We have to receive it. He already died and paid it all. We have no need to bear the wrath of Almighty God. He did it for us. I believe this is why we have so many false converts. Many preachers are employing tactics and using any means necessary to increase their statistics. Musical performers are giving tagline gospel messages at the end of their performances. I have heard youth pastors give cheap gospel messages because they don't want to become unpopular with the youth. I attended a church where I asked a pastor why the gospel is only preached on Easter Sunday. You ready for this answer? I was told that the congregation was too spiritually mature to hear the gospel Sunday after Sunday. My wife and I fled that church right now quick and in a hurry, let me tell you. Cheap grace and damnable heresy will not save you. It will do nothing more than tickle your ears and leave you one heartbeat away from an eternity in hell. Why is this so important to me? I was raised in church. I was not raised in Christ. I was adopted to parents in a uh, small town about 50 miles west of here. Most of you know that town. We supported their food pantry. Brother Steve is ministering in a town that is very religious. But I assure you, there is one church, to the best of my knowledge, that is preaching the word of Almighty God, and that's Victory Baptist Church in Mendota. Brother Steve has his task cut out for him. That town is very religious, but it, it is not saved. And I thank God that Brother Steve is down there. That's my hometown, and I'm grateful. But my parents drug me off. I was dressed right sat right, acted right, behaved right, everything in church, did everything we are supposed to do, put my dime and eventually a quarter in the offering plate every Sunday, and everything was great. But I wasn't saved. I didn't know what the gospel was. I didn't know Jesus and his cross. We had liturgical orthodoxy. I'll let you look that one up. But it's basically everybody saying the same thing, doing the same thing, season after season, time after time, year after year, and it's meaningless. Pastors didn't get up and preach a message that the Lord laid on their heart. They preached a message that the denomination suggested or the time of the year suggested. They did not fall on their face before God and ask him for their message to deliver. You don't grow that way, people. You don't grow. Anyway, I uh, ended up uh, graduating high school, moving on. I thought I was a good kid. I, 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 I played the organ in church. I got 90% of the Methodist hymnal and not probably 80% of the Baptist hymnal memorized. Played the organ in churches for years. Served. Even led a men's group. And I come to find out I wasn't saved. But backing up a little bit, uh, I moved back to Illinois because I felt something in me. The Lord always leaves a space in you called your conscience. And you know something is missing, but you don't know what that something is. So I started listening, and I heard something that I had never heard before. So I started listening to some TV ministries. And we know for the most part there that most of them are basically... Uh, virtually worthless. They're preaching prosperity gospels, damnable heresy, uh, collecting countless of millions and millions of dollars, and it's doing nothing but leading people that want their ears tickled to an eternity in hell. But I didn't know that either because that was different than anything I heard. I was hearing about Jesus. I was hearing about the cross, but it still wasn't right. I come back to Illinois after leaving college I thought things were going right. I ended up meeting Kelly. And bless God, she, she and her family were going to a Baptist church. And I'm like, okay, man, Jesus is bound to be preached there. Well, sort of yes, sort of no. But anyway, Kelly and I were dating. Three months after we started dating, August 23rd, 1988. 
Five blocks away from the word, the word of God is faithfully preached at New Hope Baptist Church. Five blocks away across Montgomery Road on Hinman is a little church. I went to a concert. As Phyllis can probably appreciate, it was a country and southern gospel concert, bless God, and it was good music. But afterwards was cheap grace, cheap gospel, damnable heresy, and I didn't understand the difference. And basically, just like a little child, when somebody says, uh, if, when you die, do you want to go to heaven? I'm like, yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die. So I got up and walked the so-called sun, uh, sawdust aisle, and I basically repeated a sinner's prayer and was told, I am saved. Didn't think anything about it. I figured, why would somebody lie to me? I didn't know any better. After that, life continued on. You can ask my family. You can ask my children. My salvation didn't save me. It didn't change me, so it couldn't have saved me. But I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. And then, brother, you want to fly? Chad, you want to put it up there for me? Then the Lord sent a man into my life and his family. My dear brother up there, Dennis Swanson, came to the Lord in 2000. From the time he was 12 to the time he was 34, he thought he was saved also. And he come to realize he was a false convert. In October of 2000, he gave his life to the Lord, and the Lord truly saved him and ignited a fire under him. This man turned into an itinerant evangelist, and he preached anywhere. He preached on the street corners at the Riverwalk in Naperville, in shopping malls, gospel tracks at gas pumps, uh, churches anywhere, funerals, nursing homes, any place there that he could share the word of God, he shared the word with God. He did it with individuals. He did it in group settings. He, he had CD after CD, tract after tract. I mean, he was totally on fire. He wore me out watching what he did. Absolutely wore me out. And I have to believe while his family was proud of him, they probably were also a little bit, uh, you know, perturbed because he literally lived for the Lord Jesus Christ and his family. I know he loved his family because basically besides the Lord, that's all there was in his life was his family. But Dennis and I didn't hit it off right away in 2000. But starting about 2002, I was like so many that are probably sitting here today, maybe. I don't know. That I'm just so, this over-the-top, loud mouth there, just preaching away and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? That was Satan belching his lies at me. Plain, pure, and simple. Satan was lying to me. And Dennis continued to love. Will Rogers, uh, if you know him, I'll let you Google if you don't, uh, there's a little shrine and memorial to him out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where on it says, I never met a man I didn't like. I can tell you, Dennis Swanson never met a man he didn't love. And I'll tell you, he loved them all the way to Jesus, and he pointed them to the cross. And that's what he did with me. I'm asking you today, if you don't know Jesus, in one day, one message, actually not one message, Pastor, Brother Mike, Brother Tom have shared messages galore with you. But I'm asking you, if you don't know Jesus, it took me two years of him preaching and loving to me. And then, one day, Billy Graham was having a crusade out in Kansas City, Missouri. And the Lord worked things out there that Dennis and I were the only ones of our little group that were finally able to go. And then the, probably one of the weirdest things happened. Dennis actually drove, which probably was a pretty good thing when I get done with this story. Usually when I go someplace, I like to drive because that's just the way I am. I can't help myself. But Lord, the Lord orchestrated this whole event. And while we were on our way out there, he, he was 
we were chatty flapping. That was an expression between us. Basically meant we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked to Storm. Our wives got to the point that said there that we, we talked more than any woman they ever knew. Okay, but we did. But it was fellowship. We were usually talking about the Lord, sometimes by umpteen hours on end. And it never got boring. Most of the time it was over a cup of coffee. And I thank God for every one of those times. But on the trip out to Kansas City, Missouri, on Interstate 35 between Des Moines, Iowa, and Kansas City, I felt the Holy Spirit come upon me from Dennis's preaching and sharing with me for all this time. And finally, I de-knuckleheaded and the Holy Spirit came in and I had a stomping, shouting, crying out to the Lord for mercy, shouting match. And I just basically exploded and finally let all the nonsense and every, all the sin of my life just pour out. Dennis was so taken aback, he practically wrecked the car, but by God's sweet grace, he kept him on the road and safe in the lane. But Dennis was just praying in his spirit there, but the Lord was at work, much like Paul when he was on the Damascus Road. Here, here, comes, here comes Jesus there and puts a beat down on him there and gets him straightened out, and uh, he's no longer malfunctioning either. And look what the Lord did with Paul. Go from a murderer and persecutor of Christians to ministry to martyrdom, to, to the writing of the bulk of the New Testament and serving Jesus Christ after murdering his people. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. We went to, we went to Kansas City and we went to the Billy Graham crusade, pouring down rain, sitting there in rain ponchos, Dennis, being an avid photographer, had to leave his camera equipment in the car because it was too expensive to take out in the rain there. And uh, so that kept him from being distracted there. And we could sit there. We listened to uh, Pastor Graham preach. And it was towards his latter years when he didn't have many more sermons left in him. So it was kind of a privilege and an honor there to hear him. But he, he started preaching, and I felt the Holy Spirit again. And when P Pastor Graham there gave an invitation, I basically felt the Holy Spirit just getting a chokehold on me and levitating me out of my seat. Much like the day there that I came under conviction here of some sin that wasn't resolved and was going on in my life when Brother Mike was preaching on Jonah. That Holy Spirit took me. I forgot to even sit my Bible down. I just came up here to this altar to take care of business with God. Because when the Holy Spirit's calling you, you got two choices. You can resist and suffer, or you can yield and take care of the business at hand. Amen? And at the cross, basically took care of some more praying that needed to go on. And I had come under conviction. Now, I don't want to sound like the legalist or the Pharisee I was talking about earlier on, about Nicodemus. But... I came under conviction that the cigarettes that I practically chain-smoked were idols in my life. The Bible doesn't say anything about not smoking. Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. And I doubt anyone's going to call him a Pharisee or a legalist or anything else, except they're one of the, the prince of preachers. But I, I, I came under conviction that those things were idols in my life because instead of going to the Lord with problems or quarrels with my wife or my family or anything else, what did I do? I'd light a cigarette. Those things were in my way of my joy and my relationship with the Lord. I threw those things down at the foot of the cross. Dennis, being a nice guy, went and picked them up so we didn't litter. But uh, when he picked them up, I said, you make sure I never see those things again. Throw them away. And he did. And I gave those to the Lord. And any time I had tried to quit in this miserable arm of flesh... I would fail sometimes within an hour, sometimes within a day or two or a week or two, but I would fail and be back down for another carton of Marlboros. I quit in the Lord, and I had zero withdrawal, zero anything, because I was now having smoking cessation by the mercy of Almighty God. And that mercy has sustained me for over 13 years now. With zero, and I've had some of the greatest tragedies and toughest times of my life in those 13 years, and I've had zero desire because God's mercy is real.
If you're struggling today with any addiction, I suggest get your arm of flesh out of the equation and get on your face before God and give it to him and draw down on his grace and mercy and he will, he will heal you and he will sustain you. Now, just one more thing about my dear brother Dennis. He understood Matthew 28, 19 through 20, uh, where basically we're talking about the Great Commission. You can't evangelize if you're not going to disciple. They're inextricably linked. And that's part of the problem. People see people to Jesus, and then they're fending for themselves. If you, you got to have discipleship if you're going to have evangelization. They're inextricably linked to each other. So on the way home, uh, Dennis was smart enough to know I had now had a target on my back that Satan was going to be throwing fiery darts at, and Satan did start. Dennis, never being at the lacking for sermons, put on a five-CD five sermon series on Satan and made sure I understood what Satan was going to be trying to do for me for the rest of my life. And it worked, and it stuck. So, so I, thank, I thank God for my brother, and Shannon and Abby, I thank you for uh, loving your dad and, and your husband enough there to allow him to love me. He was my best friend, and uh, Dennis uh, passed into glory on July 6, 2012, succumbing to that wonderful cancer word that has taken so many people from this church. I'm sorry, but I miss them, and I miss them dearly. And you, you guys hear me say booga booga around here, which basically was a Dennis and Dave term, which meant it was a God thing. This morning, Brother Mike, once again, with his scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Dennis and I wanted to open up a, the Big Timbers coffee shop, and Big Timbers basically meaning the cross of Christ. And uh, he designed a coffee mug, Big Timbers Coffee Lodge, and on the back, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And right now, Shannon has one cup, and I have the other cup. Those are the only two cups of that dream that are in existence. So, Brother Mike, I say to the morning scripture, that was a booga booga. All right. Resuming the message. We not only have the greatest tragedy, the greatest truth, we have the greatest text in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In this passage, you see the greatest being there is, God. You see the greatest love there is, so loved. You see the greatest gift, he gave. You see the greatest Savior, his Son, the greatest price, his blood. The greatest sacrifice, his life. The greatest opportunity, whosoever. Wow. Whosoever. Amen. The greatest act, believeth. The greatest object, him. The greatest promise, shall not perish. I'm going to tell you flat-footed right now and straight away. It says it right here. Believeth on him, you shall not perish. God is incapable of lying. He said it. Believeth in him, you shall not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And that is your greatest possession, everlasting life. This is the greatest text you will ever read. Bless God. Amen. So here's what we have. The world's greatest tragedy, that a man can be religious, rich, a ruler, and respect it, and still die and go to hell. The greatest tragedy, you can sit in church your whole life and still never be born again. There is the greatest truth that you must be born again. And then we looked at the greatest text from John 3.16. The final thing I want to preach on this morning, and I'm trying to preach this in the solemnity that it needs to be preached in, is the world's greatest test. I didn't tell you at the start of the sermon there's going to be a test after the sermon. The world's greatest test that Jesus gives us right after those verses, he said, men love darkness. They won't come to the light. Do you know what he is telling you? He is giving you a test. 
What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? The greatest test you will have in your life is not some finals in, your, in high school or college. You may think it is, but it's not. The greatest test you're ever going to have in your life is will you humble yourself, admit you're a sinner, and come to Jesus Christ. What was happening with Nicodemus is what is happening with all of us. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. The greatest test you ever have to deal with is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? The test is not whether you are a sinner and condemned. He says you already are. We already are. The greatest test is not comparing yourselves among yourselves. That's not wise because you can always find somebody living as good as you or at least as far as you know. The greatest test is not weighing your good against the bad. The greatest test according to Jesus Christ is will you come to the light or will you reject it? So I ask, this, I ask you this morning, you may have the greatest truth, you may have the greatest text, but the greatest test you're ever going to do and have facing you is what have you done with Jesus Christ? When you face eternity, it will do you no good to say, I was faithful at New Hope Baptist Church. I attended, I gave money, I helped out, I did this and that. The question is going to be, were you born again? If you don't have that, then all the rest that we are doing don't amount to anything. Are you born again? Can I have the other picture up there, Chad? The, the church family. I'm looking at that picture. You've heard the incorruptible seed of God this morning planted in your life. The Holy Spirit is here and working. Are we going to be able, all of us that are in that picture or represented as that picture, going to be able to gather together in heaven and take a duplicate picture? If not, why not? This morning, we're going to have an invitation. There, there's going to be a test. What will you do with the light? Be sure you have no secrets from God. He knows them all. In Numbers, it says, be sure your sins will find you out. You can't hide in the darkness and hide from Christ. He knows you. He knows what's going on. This test is a pass-fail test. It's not graded on a curve so the college professor can be popular. It's either 100% or it's zero, and there's no grading curve. It's pass-fail. Some of you have already taken this test, and I rejoice with you if you have. If you've already taken this test and passed, I, I, I thank God for that. But if you haven't taken this test, you will take it before you leave here today. You're either going to get 100% or you're going to leave here with a zero. Here's the good part about it. In most classrooms, you look on your neighbor's test. You're going to fail or get in trouble with the principal or the college dean or whoever. Here, you can reach out to your neighbor and ask them for help. What do I do with this test? This, this is the most important test you're going to take in your life, folks. Don't play games with God. He knows the truth. So this morning as we prepare, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not been born again, if you have any doubt that you've been born again, step out and come to this altar and take care of the business at hand. You can get right with God. There are people here that love you. There are people that will hear that will help you. If you're not physically able to make it to the altar, you can sit in the front row. There's room. If you can't make it that far, raise your hand. And Pastor or Darren or Brother Mike or myself or somebody will come to you 
and help you with that decision. Don't leave here failing the exam. Yes, do I have to come to the altar in order to be saved? The answer is no. But I can assure you, it will help you shake off some of that foolish pride. Don't be so proud, because don't worry about what people think. If you've been at this church for 30 years, 20 years, two weeks, it doesn't matter. Come to the altar. Take care of business with the Lord. Don't worry about what people think. Get, shake off that bondage. Worry about what God already knows. That's what's important. Worry about what God knows. So I invite you, if you have any misgoings on and any unforgiveness with anybody in this church, I want this to be a happy family when Kelly and I leave here today. Get up, walk over somebody, and make your peace. Make your peace with God and make your peace with them. If you have something else going on in your life, some burden, something there that is going on, get it right with God. Get peace with it. Deal with it. Take care of business today and bring it to the Lord.